and welcome to this episode of the ELT CPD podcast, the second in our mini-series of transitioning from an ELT teacher to a materials writer. In our first episode, we look specifically at ways teachers can get paid for the materials they make with our guest Harry Waters. Today, I'm so excited to be talking to John Hughes, who's written over 50 published titles and has a wealth of experience in both teaching and materials writing. Hi John, how are you? Hi Billy, how are you? Yeah, good, thank you. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm all right. Okay, so let's start by hearing a little bit about yourself. My name is John Hughes. I'm a primarily a, a course book writer, materials writer, though I still do quite a lot of teacher training. Not all of it's in English language teaching. Some of it now is in online course design. Uh, and I still do bits of teaching. I do some volunteer teaching in Oxford, partly because there are students who need English and can't access it through language schools. But for me, it's great because I get to pilot materials and try out ideas. Yeah. Um, and that's that's crucial for any materials writer to keep testing your assumptions, I think, about the classroom and what will work in a piece of material. Definitely. But but I 70% of my job is is materials writing, yeah. And I have someone once asked me how many books I'd written. It's kind of over 50 titles, but that includes things like teachers' books, additional materials. It's a mixture of things. So it's kind of hard to say, but I probably I'm connected with two or three sort of big course series. Um, of books in general English and business English. Business English was my original sort of background and then I moved into general English. Okay, so what made you go from teaching business English into materials writing? Well, if you come from a business English or English for specific purposes background, by definition, it's hard to find materials that will suit a class of engineers or a class of doctors. And we're talking, I started teaching in 1992, so there wasn't the range of materials anyway. And you certainly, there wasn't something particularly called the internet where you could go and look for materials. So you were just in a position where you had to create content um, I'd got a bit of a writing background. I'd done little bits of journalism and stuff, so I knew how to write an article, for example. And so I started very quickly to develop my own materials when I was working in one-to-one and business English. And in fact, when I finished what was then called the C. Tefler, now called the CELTA, I wanted to get work experience, mm-hmm. and so I did volunteer teaching with refugees. It was during the time of the Bosnian conflict, wow, okay. uh, and I was working with some students in London, and we didn't really have access to any course books, and what there was wasn't really suitable for them. So, in fact, there was a magazine called Time Out in London that was very popular. It was like the Bible of everything going on, mm-hmm. and I used to use that a lot and create materials from that because there was a page. I remember there was a page called London for Free, where it told you all the free stuff you could do, which was ideal for these yeah. students because they had no money, um, and they kind of liked it. And I and I kind of got into this mode of thinking: Well, what do my students want? Not just in terms of English, but what are they genuinely interested in reading about? Yeah. So that kind of that got me writing. And I think I probably started writing relatively quickly. Um, but then when I, I went to Poland and I was given headway, which everybody taught within those days, and it's on what is sixth or seventh edition mm-hmm. now. I mean, it's a phenomenal course series. Um, 
And that I was just told to get on and teach from the book. But in many ways, sometimes teachers complain about that. Actually, that was a good training ground for me because, because I learned uh, from having to learn how to teach from a course book, you really start to understand how other people write materials. Definitely. And actually learning how to teach from other materials is, is part of what you need to do in order to develop your own materials writing skills because you learn what works and what you think doesn't mm -hmm. work or what you could improve and then you start to supplement it with your own tests or your own games and that kind of thing so it's all that that kind of development so yeah materials writing was something i did sort of quickly and when normally when people say to me uh, how do I get into materials writing? My first question is, well, do you just naturally write? I mean, mm -hmm. are you a teacher who likes to yeah. produce your own materials? Mm -hmm. Not all teachers do. I mean, some teachers, they just want the course book to do it. And they may be a teacher who then goes off and specialises in management or exams or whatever it is, or teacher training. And then there's some teachers who just like writing and they're naturally the ones who who you know are going to be going into materials writing definitely so you started by creating materials as you said to supplement and to teach in your lessons but how did you start working for publishers and get into paid materials writing what were the steps that you took well i would say most material writers have a bit of an ego and they think their writing's good and so <laughs> i very quickly started to send it off to magazines and journals, things okay. like English Teaching Professional and Modern English Teacher, who I've always had a very close relationship with for many years, and I've written, continue to write articles. And they're teacher development articles, but they also include photocopyables and activities you might produce for the classroom. And I think that's a really important step because you get your name out there, people read your materials. And when you write for those magazines, you also learn to work with an editor because the yeah. editor of the magazine reads your stuff, mm -hmm. gives you comment, gives you feedback, and that's crucial. And you learn that that side of writing, which is crucial to work with an editor. And people people don't understand just the importance of an editor on the shaping and the yeah. creation of material. They're mm -hmm. crucial in the process. So I think by submitting writing to that... I was learning from that, but also I was getting my name out there. Definitely. And then I started to go to lots of conferences. I got involved in IATEFL. You have to put yourself out there. People, people won't just discover your material. They mm -hmm. have to see your name. They have to maybe turn up at a presentation where you're talking about a particular topic. And if you're lucky, it's a topic that the publisher is currently interested in and maybe it's the developmental editor who's looking for writers to write on a particular area. So I got, I presented on something on Business English in IATEFL Poland in the mid-90s and that was the first time an editor from Oxford University Press walked up to me after my session said, I really enjoyed your session, do you ever write any stuff? Uh, and so that kind of set up a contact. That's great. And, and then actually through building that contact, the yeah. publisher contacted me because they were developing course materials and they asked me to review it. And they would, okay. I don't know, they pay you £50 or they give you some free books to review materials. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I, I remember I got, in, I got working with Oxford University Press because they were developing a new business English series. And at that point, I was running a business English department in Italy. and We ran corporate courses. Okay. 
and they asked me to review these business English materials. And I went over and above kind of what they wanted. I started to say, oh, and you could offer this and you could add this to the course and the teacher's book should have this as well. And they loved it. And they mm -hmm. said, well, do you want to write the teacher's book? And that was how I got that's in. Excellent. Yeah, that's really good. So was that your first project that you got commissioned for? Yeah, my first teacher's book that I wrote was in 2002 for a short business English course for Oxford University Press. And I kind of went through what used to be a standard apprenticeship. You kind of got to write your teacher's book and then you wrote your workbook. And mm -hmm. then finally one day said, do you want to write a student book kind of thing? That's, that used to be the sort of the holy grail. Yeah. Um, now it's slightly differently. I mean, I see people going straight to writing student books because the, the nature of publishing has changed and books get written in enormous teams of writers yeah. and it's quite granularized. So it's, uh, you get writers writing different parts of the book. Um, so the, the, the way into publishing is slightly different. But I went through, I, yeah, what was sort of fairly, considered a fairly standard apprenticeship with a publisher at that point. Definitely. Would you say that it's harder or easier to sort of get into publishing nowadays? Because like you said, when you started in the 90s, there wasn't LinkedIn, there wasn't the opportunity to get yourself out there online. So would you say it's almost easier to put yourself out there now or more difficult to get into publishing because it's changed so much? It's a, it's a really tricky question because it's, um, in some ways it should be easier because of social media in these kinds of things and all the different ways you can promote yourself but then everybody's doing it and the publishers are swamped with 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 this kind of thing so how does a publisher kind of work out if this person is going to be able to write the material and so on and i think publishers yeah they will find writers through reputation and they'll still go to conferences and they might look at things that you've written in journals and if your name pops up but they won't just do it if you're for example doing your own blog mm -hmm. and reposting your blog i think that's important and blogging is a new way that didn't exist when i started of promoting your content and it's also a way of sharing your material with other teachers but in, for the publishers, there's so much out there. How do they find people who can really deliver and check the kind of, if you like, I don't know, the rigor of their abilities? And a lot of them will still do it through routes like going, attending talks at conferences and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I would say anybody who really wants to make that jump into materials writing, um, I think it's a change of mindset from being sort of a teacher to saying, well, I'm going to go freelance, so I actually need a business-like approach. Mm -hmm. You've got to become slightly business-like, a bit Definitely. slightly entrepreneurial. Yeah. I was lucky because I taught so many business English students. While I was teaching English to them, I was learning vast amounts about how business works, how you negotiate, and That's how true, just yeah. the processes, the importance of networking, and all of that, those kind of business skills, those soft skills actually really have, you know, have helped me kind of put myself out there. And, uh, you know, learning to go up and find the name of the, the actual name of the publisher you need to speak to and walking up to them at a stand at a conference and putting your hand out and, you know, shaking the hand and looking professional. All of that becomes, you know, another side of what you're doing if you want to get 
kind of noticed. Definitely. So you can network at conferences, you can be confident and approach somebody as well. But are there any specific networking groups that you'd recommend? Yeah, I mean, I've been involved in the past with um, Aya Teffel's Material Writer Special Interest Group, MORSIC. So you can go to the MORSIC website and they have blog posts, they hold webinars. They're a a special interest group of Aya Teffel that helps support people who want to get into materials writing and attending one of their conferences. Obviously, they're doing a lot of online webinars at the moment, so you can learn a lot from that. Um, If you're in, say, the Americas, in the US, there's TESOL, and they have the equivalent, um, which is the Material Writers Interest section. It's a very similar kind of uh, group of people. Okay. I mean, their events and so on are good for for learning, but also for... for networking as well mm-hmm. yeah definitely and when a writer first gets commissioned what sort of things can they expect from a publisher to receive if they've got no knowledge whatsoever of the publishing process what sort of things would a publisher give them to start out on their project well it, it depends a little bit if the writer has gone to the publisher with the idea with the concept then you're going to have to develop the whole concept what we call the brief and that happens less and less it used to be that a writer could go to a publisher suggest an idea and the writer and the publisher might say yeah great Mm -hmm. um i wrote a book years ago called lessons in your rucksack which was this small paperback sized book and it was the sort of it was aimed at the typical backpacker type English teacher. And if you took one book with you, you could fit this in your rucksack. Oh, and really it good. had lots of ideas. And it didn't really sell very many because oh, no. I took it to quite a small publisher. And uh, it was also, I discovered it was just a very limited market. But I learned a lot from writing it. There's that, kind of, there's that kind of book which comes from your own ideas. Yeah. But these days, I mean, if you're going to write for a big publisher, they've already got a five-year plan. They already know what they're looking for. They've done tons of focus group work and research with teachers for specific countries, specific education systems. They've already worked that out. I mean, I I don't think writers sometimes or new writers realise what an enormous team effort it is to put a course series together it's just a vast amount of people there's the Mm -hmm. designers and editors and publishers and readers and all of this kind of thing so you've kind of got to quickly get on board with that and and learn how to work within it and that you're only part of the whole thing just because you're the writer you're not the you know number one in in the in the process necessarily there's a point in the process where design becomes much more important or the digital components become the main focus so it's a it's a very different kind of landscape nowadays in terms of how this is put together so you've got to be someone who's willing to work as, as a team and get on with people and, uh, and crucially, deliver on time. Mm-hmm. Publishers recommission writers who deliver the content on time. They yeah. don't like writers who are late. Um, that makes it just, you know, and it goes back to this thing of being businesslike and being professional and that kind of thing, the way you communicate, the way you deliver the content. Definitely. Um, and also, like you said, taking the feedback from the editor on board as well, taking criticism of your own work can only make it better. Yeah, I mean, compromise is a really uh, tough one. And I think when when new writers come to projects, um, they have a concept of 
you know, they might have a particular approach they're pushing or they might have a view on how learning works best. And as soon as you get involved in the, the sort of team process of putting a, a course together for publishing, you soon, well, you, you kind of learn to fight your battles. I mean, if something is genuinely being changed in the book that is wrong, mm -hmm. then that's the battle you fight. But if it's an argument over what you think the best design is or they weren't able to use the picture that you wanted and a slightly less good picture was chosen there are there are moments where you just say okay there's there's reasons why that's happened Definitely. i won't fight that battle kind of thing so learn to compromise and get on with with the team um and it also then depends what you're writing for i mean if you've been brought onto the project because you are an expert in a particular country so if you're writing versioning books for Poland, for example, you've possibly been brought onto the project because your expertise of the Polish education system or your knowledge of Polish mm -hmm. or whatever it is, in which case then you can really influence the project. Um, if you're writing materials for a book that's going to be sold all around the world, there'll be a whole mass of factors affecting the writing that or the, the creation of the course some of which you won't necessarily be familiar with. They'll be, I don't know, for whatever reason, in Mexico, they need the book to do X, Y, and Z, and you, that information may not have filtered back to you kind of thing, but there's a reason why a change was made. Definitely. So, yeah, compromises. I mean, some people never really get used to that, and they, they go away from materials writing for publishers, but it, it's so you kind of make that decision as you you go along i think so do you think that it's important for a teacher getting into materials writing to maybe research the publishing process first to make sure that they know exactly what the steps are for example like a first proof a second proof so specific terminology do you think that's important or do you think materials writers can learn it as they go along uh, well, you can learn it as you go along, because I learned it as I went along. But nowadays, there's all sorts of ways you could be ahead of the game. I mm -hmm. mean, there's all sorts of terminology, like you say, first proof, second proof. We talk about spreads in course book, which is the two-page spread, and there's different things like that. But, there's, I mean, there's all sorts of ways you can get ahead of the game. Um, I've written a couple of books with the organisation ELT Teacher to Writer who published very short guides on writing different um, things about publishing. So I wrote one on how to write audio and video scripts. Mm -hmm. And they're, you know, they're not long books. They also have a book called A Lexicon for ELT Professionals, which is just a collection of all the terminology. It's by Diane Nichols. Mm -hmm. And if you want a very fast, it's sort of... Like if you're getting emails from your editor and say, oh, we need to see second proofs or there needs to be more higher order thinking exercises and you're thinking, what is this about? Then, then that kind of content is now available and you can sort of keep on top of it. But I mean, generally, if you work for a publisher and they send you something and they refer to some technical aspect of publishing, I mean, just use it as an opportunity. Ask the editor, what does that mean? I mean people understand that yeah. you're, you know, you're coming from a different background. It's an opportunity to find out about it. 
We'll put a link to the books that you mentioned because I think that's really useful for teachers getting into writing as well. Yeah, I mean, EL Teacher to Writer, they've produced a lot of good content that's um, that's helpful for anybody sort of making that transition. Or even if you don't want to go into published material writing, it's got full of ideas if you just like writing materials for your own lessons. So what are some of the difficulties that you think new writers might face when they're working on their first project? Well, we've mentioned some of them. I mean, there is that sort of that terminology and understanding of the process and understanding that it is a team process, that ability to compromise sometimes on things that you think uh, are the right way to do something. I think one of the interesting things I always noticed was that learning from it that, that when a teacher uses my material, they will do all sorts of things with it that I never expected to happen. (laughs) And that's kind of interesting. And with my sort of teacher training hat on, I've got to observe lots of teachers in the past. And I've observed teachers use my materials. And I've been into some lessons where I haven't even recognised my materials. I can't sort of tell what's happening to the book that I've written. And at first, you that can be... That can throw you a bit as a materials writer. But actually... Um, I did some some personal research some time back and I interviewed people about the role of the course book and how they use course books and I came to the conclusion in, in very broad general terms there are three types of teacher there's teachers who open your book there's the teacher who starts at exercise one does exercise two three four five six seven eight nine ten yeah. then there's the teacher who kind of starts at exercise one misses out two and three writes their own material and then does four five and six mm-hmm. and then there's the teacher who sort of flicks through, likes the reading that's in there, likes the video that you've got in one of the units, but then goes off and writes their own kind of content to go with it. And they're quite often, actually, they're, they're the budding material writers quite often. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as a, as a writer, you are writing for the first teacher. Your primary responsibility is to provide the content to help that yeah. teacher who wants everything from the book, but to provide material that's interesting enough to excite the other types of teachers who want to use it as a springboard. And when you're writing for those types of teachers, it doesn't always necessarily reflect the way you personally teach. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think one thing writers find um, difficult, and I've done training of material writers to help them with this, where they've written material that works in their lessons and for them. Yeah but they haven't thought through the whole thing of what happens when I give this material to someone else, can they teach with it? Exactly. You know, I mean, lots of teachers who've, who've wanted to become material writers, if they've, they've sometimes had that experience where they've met a colleague in the corridor who's panicking because they haven't got a good lesson for that day. And you say, Oh, well, I've written this worksheet. It's great. Take this in. And you give it to that teacher and you see them a day later and say, how did it go? And you can tell by their response that actually the worksheet really didn't work very well for them. Not because the idea was necessarily bad, but you just didn't write it in a way that another teacher can actually use it. Um, And that's why things like teacher's notes, answer keys, that kind of thing becomes important. Your ability to write rubrics or instruction lines in materials you you perhaps don't need them for your own lessons but another teacher reading it needs to know what the instructions are and the students do and you need to be able to write them in a way that's level appropriate 
So I think one of those biggest challenges is learning to that you're not just writing for yourself, you're writing for teachers who you may never meet yeah. and teachers working in very different situations. Mm-hmm. You know, at the moment, like materials are being used in countries like China where there could be 50 students in the class, Definitely. you know, I mean, big classes. So when you first started writing, you said you were teaching and then you got commissioned for the project. So were you doing both at the same time or did you sort of know that the project you got commissioned for was enough to sustain you as a freelancer or had you never considered going freelance before? Uh, I hadn't thought about it and I was juggling and I think like most people are going to material writers, there's that period where you're teaching or you're training or you're managing and you're trying to write some material for a publisher for the first time. And uh, I don't think there's an easy way around that. I think you just, when I, in my first books I wrote, I was managing a teacher training department and training teachers and trying to write teachers' books and things and starting to write my first course book. And I had a lot of weekends and late nights, basically. I yeah. put in a lot of hours to, to get it done. Um, and then there becomes a point where you're working 100 hours a week and you're thinking, yeah, I can't go on doing this. Am I ready to make that step and just kind of step away from working for someone else and go freelance? Um you you sort of know, I mean, if you get offered a big project that might looks like it's going to last maybe a couple of years, then that's a good time to make that step. And you might, there's also that thing of when you step away, you might miss the camaraderie of the teacher's room or you might actually miss the time you spent teaching. And sometimes people do think, oh, well, I'll go into materials writing and they genuinely miss being in the classroom a lot of the time. And that, that's why I think, you know, even if you're right materials, you need to make sure that you're, you are getting back in the classroom regularly just to sort of check things uh, and try materials out and so on. So there's th- that sort of strange transition phase. But um, I went fully full time, yeah, 2006. Mm-hmm. And I knew I had two or three sort of projects and I was starting to establish myself and I'd, I'd got contracts sort of set up and, and I wasn't going to manage it and keep doing another job. So I just, I took the jump kind of thing. Yeah. So how do you think, for example, when you get your first project, so often you have to send a sample in. So it can be quite disheartening if you send a sample in and you don't get commission for a project because often you don't get feedback on why. So how can writers get over that and what advice would you give someone in that situation to keep going? Well, if I base it on personal experience, one of my early kind of breaks was that, I can't go into specifics, but Oxford University Press were doing a course series and they'd done a couple of levels and it had an existing writer on the course who was the sort of the main writer on the course. They were looking for a co-writer and because I'd done some, uh, I'd worked on a teacher's book and I'd done some reviewing and so on, they asked me to write a sample. Mm-hmm. And so I sent the sample in and and I didn't get much feedback, but I, in the end, discovered that um, the other writer hadn't liked the sample, but the rest of the editorial and the publishing team had liked it. Wow. So there'd been some kind of debate, which is fine, you know, that, that's, that's okay. But the point was, I wrote the sample, it never got used, but as a result of it, uh, I was offered a different project by the editorial team. So it all yeah. worked out. So I think if you're trying to break in, 
writing the sample is a, is a little kind of demonstration of saying, this is what I can do. It's mm -hmm. kind of like a calling card. And anyway, when you write a sample, by the, if, even if that was a sample for a project you were going to join, I guarantee that by the end of the whole process, that sample will have, you won't recognize it anyway, because it will have been rewritten, changed and consumed, you know, consumed into the rest of this course series. And, and, you know, the, the point is a sample, if you're going to be a writer who publishers want to work with, you're going to be a writer who accepts that things get changed. So the sample will change. So it's really the sample is your, 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 you know, it's your advertising, it's showing that you can actually do this. So I wouldn't get too hung up and people get a bit precious about sample units and stuff and concerned that they they may keep the copyright on it and all of this kind of thing but in the grand scheme of publishing that sample is just you saying hey i'm here i can do this you know and i can deliver it on time yeah, so um i wouldn't get disheartened and also from my own experience even if your sample for a particular project doesn't get accepted then it might lead to other things anyway definitely so, so what things would you say that you've learned through your years of experience from your very first project to now? Have you got any tips or advice? Well, I've mentioned some of them. I mean, that learning to that you're not writing for yourself, that you're writing for other people. In terms of preparing yourself for writing, you should teach as many different types of students as you can beforehand. I mean, I don't write young learners because I haven't spent enough years teaching young learners. I've done it, but I've spent a lot of time teaching adults, business English people, English for academic purposes, teenagers. And that wide variety of experiences and different nationalities and all of that's really important. And the other thing I would say is a lot of people who go into material writers have got teacher training experience. Mm -hmm. And the great thing about teacher training is that you observe so many different teachers and different teaching styles and you see how teachers work with materials. And a lot of that really informs the way I write. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I can take my own material into a class, pilot it, and it, it, it'll work. And I'll notice a few things that need tweaking. But the real test is to give it to another teacher and see what they do with it. Uh, and if you've spent a lot of time observing teachers, I think that's that's really helpful in that development process. And then just taking any opportunities you can to, uh, if possible, meet with other teachers. I mean, one of the best bits about my uh, experiences of course book writers I've traveled so much and I've met teachers from all over the world and I've observed classes in different parts of the world and I've got experience of a different education system and and the more you build up that experience and knowledge of different the way education is in different parts of the world yeah. that, that helps enormously in affecting the way you write and thinking about what it is you're doing and thinking how something might be used in a classroom. Yeah, it's really, really useful. I've written books about material writing. So there's a book called ETpedia Materials uh, uh, Writing, which I wrote with the, the author Lindsay Clanfield, published mm -hmm. by Pavilion ELT. And there we give you a whole load of tips on how to write different exercise types. I mean, you've got units on 10 different types. I mean, everything is basic as 10 different types of gap fill exercise. So if you're writing a worksheet and you think, well, I need to vary my gap fills, you just, yeah. it's in there. But we also have tips on what you should include in your teacher's notes, for example, and how do you approach analyzing level, lots of 
there were lots of typical things material writers struggle with, like getting the level right. Um, yeah. You know, so it's CAFR levels and that kind of thing. So we have stuff in that. So I'm, yeah, I've always been pleased with that book as a kind of resource for materials writers. Yeah. I think we have a, a couple of questions from listeners that they sent in. So this one's quite tricky. Do you think there's a gap in the market for more materials writers? It's strange at the moment because, of course, with the pandemic going on, uh, a lot of new publishing has not happened. There's been a lot of converting, well, I'm actually not converting print books courses into digital because it already existed it's just yeah. there's a lot of time spent people using books training them how to use the digital components so teachers are kind of discovering that that content is there for the first time so it means that a lot of commissioning is being pulled back at the moment so it's it's a tricky time to to make a change and jump into materials writing but i mean i think that's true for any career path at the moment so yeah. it's it's not it's not just in materials writing i mean if you've got a full-time job at the moment and you're teaching i recommend you probably stick with it just <laughs> for the time being um writing's different in that it's as i said it's more granular now it's more writing in teams gone are the days where you're likely to be the only author on a course book you know, or there might be two of you on a course book. So in a sense, there's more writing work, but it's it's shorter stuff. It's, it's bits of pieces. So you might be writing exam materials or test materials one week, or you might be writing worksheets to go with the website that's going to support the course series. So there is a lot of that kind of content where writers are needed. So in fact, there is, you know, for that kind of writing, I think publishers are probably, there's probably more material writers than there ever have been. Mm -hmm. And also, I think because of the development of special interest groups like, like Morstig and so on, it reflects the fact there are more people around who are writing or interested in writing. So there is that gap. There's also a gap for new, if you like, people don't like this term, content creators. So not so much like material writers in the sense of writing course book, but people who can create content, interesting video contrast, mm -hmm. content, interesting apps. It's still all to be discovered out there and the potential for writers to create their own, I don't know, materials through an app if they've got if they're technically savvy, there's that kind of potential. There's also a lot of private companies now setting up who are delivering online content in very niche areas, like maybe just in Japan or something, and they're looking for item writers, so people to write content to go into their online platforms yeah. and stuff. I mean, there's, there's work out there like that as well. And obviously now, more than ever, people are sort of self-publishing. If you consider that blogging is a type of uh, self-publishing, you can publish a book with Amazon and you can get 70% of the, the royalties. And I know one or two people who are, you know, made a, a bit of money out of it. Your problem is you quickly discover that you don't have your own marketing department. Yeah. You are the marketing department if yeah. you self-publish whereas the bigger publishers who commission you, you'll get a lower royalty, but then they're spending enormous sums of money on marketing it. And so, you know, the self-publisher route is something to consider, but don't expect to, you know, 
make a fortune. The other thing is with self-publishing is it's, sort of, it's another way of somebody seeing you out there mm-hmm. and picking up a copy of something you self-published and saying, oh, this is good. Do you want to come and write for us? So that's another route into publishing. So there is a gap, but you've, yeah, the moment isn't the best time. Um, but there is, yeah, there's plenty of work out there, I think, with somebody who can demonstrate they can deliver, yeah. And do you think that materials writers should position themselves as a specialist in one particular area? Or do you think that they should say that they have the ability to write materials for all sectors? I know you said you have to have some sort of experience, perhaps with young learners or teens or adults. But do you think that materials writers should specialise as an easier way to get work? Or There's some writers who clearly have a niche and their name is associated with a particular area. Yeah. Then there's other writers who write much more broadly. I mean, I started in business English, but I had taught general English, so I was able to move into those areas. And and I think if you if you if you want to write materials virtually sort of full time or really make that your main income, then I'm not sure about getting put into a niche. I think that's quite tricky. I mean, I was in a niche for a while where people said, oh, you write business English materials, don't mm-hmm. you? And I couldn't actually move into just general English course writing or writing for Cambridge exams yeah. type material because people just thought I wrote business English. And the problem with, with that is that the... and also you're just sort of limiting yourself and you kind of if you want to write more broadly on different areas you just want the sort of I I mean I personally like the variety yeah so and also yeah just to make sure you're covered you know a project can you can be the business English writer and you write your project for two years and then at the end of it well what do I do now because I've written my business English series I'm not going to write another one yeah so where do I go next so you need to I, I personally I'm I've got a few different areas I work in and I'm less associated with one thing these days. Um, I think if you niche write, the danger is there isn't going to be enough there. I don't think necessarily you can, you have to think as material writers as the only thing you do. You can have a portfolio of things. I mean, I still like training and teaching. So you might decide to be the niche writer and maybe 30 or 40% of your time is spent material writing and the rest of the time you spend teaching or training, but that's fine uh, if that's what you want to do. Um, and the final listener question that we have is, are there any specific qualifications or requirements that publishers look for when hiring materials writers? Yeah, I wasn't sure about this because I could only base it on my experiences when there weren't specific qualifications or requirements that I knew of. So I actually mm-hmm. contacted the publisher I work with at National Geographic Learning to see what she said. So I was because I was interested to see what publishers say nowadays. But yeah. actually, I don't think much has changed in terms of, you know, if people say, should I have an MA in materials writing? Well, maybe, uh, not necessarily. What she said, for example, was that a publisher might look at what projects they've looked on, bef- worked on before. Well, of course, you might say, but I haven't worked on formal materials project. But think about the things you have worked on. I mean, if you've written a set of materials for your language school to be used by other teachers, then you've worked on other projects. I mean, right. you know, you have to think right. about how how you present yourself, how you kind of sell it. Um, you know, don't undersell your past experience, maybe just within your own school. Um, I think 
they would look for hands-on experience in the areas like curriculum development, selection, that kind of thing. Obviously, they're looking for somebody who's got a an experience fit with the writing task. So if you've got lots of experience in young learners, maybe taken some courses or you've done some teacher training in young learners, then clearly that's that's all to the good. Or if you've spent years or you've, I don't know, um, teaching in, say, Spain, for example, you would use that experience and you might write for the Spanish market. In fact, if you're a Spanish teacher, you know, it would make sense. Sometimes teachers say to me, how do I get into the publishing? I'm thinking, well, you know, focus on the publishing going on in your country initially, you know, um, use that background. And if you obviously, you know, if you've got Spanish as your L1, then make use of that, exploit that and, and write materials for that uh, you know that country that market yeah. those types of students absolutely mm-hmm. uh, and sell yourself uh, that way and then yeah she would say building a reputation for yourself through research conference presentations the things we mentioned right at the beginning actually and and in a sense the way I got into materials writing I don't think a great deal has changed there's, there's just different ways of doing it now because of course you can blog you can promote yourself on social media you can do webinars you can um, you can self-publish your own materials. So materials writers, what the publisher said, essentially doesn't need to have specific qualifications. It's more about the experience in the classroom, also sort of speaking at conferences and putting yourself out there in articles and magazines. More yeah, so. I mean, I, I do. I, I, having said that, I still think letters after your name help. You mm-hmm. know, if you've got a diploma, uh, any publisher's going to expect you to have been teaching for a few years. They'd probably expect you to have either a diploma or something equivalent or an MA in TESOL. Um, those kinds of qualifications, obviously, they want credibility um, and that you know your stuff. But, I mean, to, if you're realistically going to go into materials writing, you've probably done a lot of those kinds of qualifications anyway. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for all of your tips, advice, and uh, for coming on the show as well. I know no, it's been, been a pleasure. Really, really useful. And as I said, we'll get a list of the resources that you mentioned as well to go alongside this so that people can do further reading and research and hopefully go from being a teacher to a writer. Cool. All thank right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good. good. Um, all right. Thanks, yeah. Billy. So thanks so much for listening to our episode today. We really hope you enjoyed it and got some excellent tips and advice from our discussion with our teaching to writing expert, John Hughes. Remember to follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn and Facebook at ELTCPD for news on our latest episodes as well as new ELT job posts. If you haven't already subscribed to us on YouTube, you can find us by searching for ELTCPD, all one word. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye.